Today we uh, are getting back into our story of Jonah. This is, again, a story that I think we often think of one particular aspect of, and that is this um, idea of a giant fish. But hopefully, as we've been going through this, you've realized that that is uh, a very small part, actually, in a larger narrative of this prophet who is so unlike so many of the prophets in the Old Testament that we read about. And in that, I think I find uh, Jonah compelling because I see more of myself in my relationship with God. So just a quick recap before we get into chapter 3 today. <clears throat> so God, in the beginning of Jonah, it's a very small book. Hopefully you've had a chance to read through it. There's only four chapters. In the very beginning, it starts off like most of the prophets, where God's word comes to this prophet and says, go. And in this case, though, he says, go to Nineveh this capital of the Assyrian Empire. So outside of Israel, he's being sent. And Jonah goes, but instead of going the direction God wanted him to go, he runs completely in the opposite direction. He books a trip on a ship that is going to Tarshish, this exotic port that is at the end of the known world at that time. The storm comes. He's on a boat, a massive storm comes. The text tells us that God sent it. Jonah's in the bottom of the boat taking a nap for some reason. And then meanwhile, the crew is concerned their, broke, their boat is going to break apart from all these waves and the chaos. And they're all crying out to their different gods. And so the captain comes to Jonah and says, cry out to your God. What are you doing sleeping? Jonah doesn't, but he does come up to the top. And the, the crew says, let's cast lots. Or we'd say today, draw straws. Let's figure out who is at fault here. And they find out through doing this, it's Jonah. They said, Jonah, who are you? Where have you come from? He says, well, I am a Hebrew. I am someone who worships the God uh, who created the heavens and the seas. And they go, what have you done? You know, they find out he's, he's ran away from this God. And so they, they're trying to figure out what to do. And um, Jonah says, here's what you need to do. You need to throw me off the ship. And we notice God doesn't say this, but Jonah does. And so the, the crew, they first try to row back to shore, but they can't beat the storm. So finally they do. They throw him off the ship. And Jonah immediately, um, thinking he's going to his death, is then saved, delivered by this great fish that swallows him, that God sent. And now he's in the belly of this fish, and he finally decides to pray. And so that's chapter two, and we looked at that last week, and Jonah cries out using the words of the Psalms, but he actually does not a, a prayer of lament, which is most common in the Psalms, but he actually offers a prayer of praise to God in this moment. So that's where we were last week. Oh, and by the way, then after the prayer, he gets vomited, the text tells us, up onto the shore. So this is where we, we ended last week with Jonah lying there in the sand on the edge of the beach covered in whale vomit, and we go into chapter 3. You got it? Okay, good. Oh, I don't have my Bible. That'd be helpful. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh that great city, and declare against it the proclamation that I am commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, a three days walk across. Jonah started into the city, walking one day, and he cried out, Just forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes from the greatest of them to the least significant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher this morning to illuminate what we have just heard so that it would be for us as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Lord's word comes to Jonah a second time. I love how that emphasis is in there because the first time the Lord's word came, Jonah went the wrong way. Comes a second time and says, get up and go. The get up is important because it's the way this is written, you have to have that image. Jonah has just been spit up on the beach. He's covered in sand and it's like, get up, knock off the sand, wash off the vomit and go this time. And so Jonah does. He gets up and he goes. But it's also this get up is the image. It's drawing from that image that we set, heard in the Psalms this morning that we heard in Jonah's prayer of Jonah having gone to the depths, of crying out from the place of the dead, from the underworld. He's at the worst possible spot, and he cries to God, and now God says, Jonah, get up from that and go. There's no break, there's no rest in between. Our God, it is clear from the scriptures, is a God of second chances. Our God's God of third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances, and we could go on. In fact, Scripture reveals to us that it's impossible for any of us to be so far gone that God would not come knocking on our door and call us back and use us, not just call us back to to say we're sorry, God, but call us back to use us for God's purposes in the world. Does this mean that there's no consequences for our sin and for our bad choices that we make in our life? Well, of course not. We call these sort of the natural consequences of the decisions we make. God has given us freedom. We get to choose to obey or disobey, to love or to hate. So when we make decisions that are against God's will, we do have to deal with with the consequences of those decisions. There's sort of natural, usually relational, often consequences. Sometimes there's consequences in terms of our finances or even our livelihood if we find ourselves incarcerated for a crime, for example. There are natural consequences, but God will find us where we're at and will move us forward from that place. This is why the scriptures talk about God as being our redeemer. I've been getting back into reading Dostoevsky's works. Um, I'm reading The Idiot right now. If you've never read Dostoevsky, Russian writer, written some classics, and he loves to bring these kinds of characters that seem like they are just broken, uh, discarded, and bringing life out of them. And he's, uh, he's a Christian, and he writes from these things. And I was reading about the debtor's prison this week. So there are times and places where if you were in debt to somebody and you couldn't pay them back, then you just simply got thrown into prison. And to get out of that prison, someone would have to redeem you by paying off your debts. And we have this kind of language that comes into our scripture about our God, that God is redeemer, that he will both pay off the debts and make it right, but he'll also redeem us in the sense that he can take the bad things in our life and begin to use them for something good. Guilt is the one thing that can keep us trapped and prevent us from following God. Guilt for our sin and for our disobedience. I had a professor in college, and he wrote this book that's been very influential in my life called The Will of God is a Way of Life. 
And he said uh, this line, I've never forgot it. It's something I, I repeat to myself often. He says, fear and regret are twin thieves that rob us of the joy of today. Fear and regret. Regret from our past, fear of what's around the corner in the future. If we live in either of those two places, they can rob us of the joy that God wants to give us today. Jonah, in our story, has already had to overcome the fear he has. I mentioned that being sent to Nineveh is a terrifying task for anyone, much less a prophet of God, who's being sent to a city where God is not acknowledged, to these people who are warlike and who love to torture and torment their enemies. Jonah has to get past that fear, not knowing what's going to happen when he steps into that city in order to obey God. Now, Jonah has to overcome his own guilt of disobedience and running away from God and rejecting God's call on his life. I still believe that the number one reason that Christians don't live out God's calling in their lives is because of these two things, fear and regret. Fear that we will fail, fear that we'll be rejected, fear that we're not enough somehow to do what God is calling. Regret from our past, things that we we decide, not God decides, that we decide disqualify us from being serving God in a new way. That, that regret that um, keeps us trapped in guilt, not allowing God to forgive us or not allowing ourselves to forgive ourselves after God has forgiven us. And so we stay stuck. And yet God looks at us just like he looks at Jonah and says, stand up, wash off the sand, wash off the whale puke of your past and start Start taking courageous steps towards this terrifying future. I will be with you. It's a promise we have from Jesus. Now, of course, it's much easier for me to say that. Much harder for any of us to do that, to be obedient in this way. Just because God calls us does not, and and because God promises to go with us, does not mean that it will be easy. And this is where I think so many Christians get discouraged. They think, well, if God called me to do something, and then God sent me there, and then I, I know God's with me as I go, then everything should be okay. Everything should be easy. And that's just not the way it works. In fact, sometimes it's hard. It's really hard. And that might even be evidence that we are being obedient. But even though it's not easy, when God calls and we obey, and God goes with us, it's always good. There's a quote that I have shared many times from C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorites from his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, his fictional narrative. And then in that narrative, there's this talking world of animals and these sons of Adam and Eve, these human children, they enter into this world. And in this world, Aslan, this great lion, is, is the image of Jesus in this place. And so the kids are asking these um, beavers, these talking animals, about this lion. And here's how this discussion goes. They, so they're, immediately, they're talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and the kids say, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, 
Mr. Beaver said sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Do you know who the king of, do you know, do you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he ain't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I just love that interaction. If you've seen some of the, the uh, movies around that, sometimes those, that's depicted really well because this is C.S. Lewis's way of bringing the theology about God into this fictional story. And I think that's the way so many of us encounter God. When we have a true encounter with God, how can you stand there without your knees knocking, right? It's terrifying. And when we were, if we were to meet Jesus, this idea of uh, him being safe, we see what happened in the gospel stories and when, where the disciples were called to. Is following Jesus, is going along God's will safe? No, it's not safe, but it is good. And the king is with us. That's the calling that we've been called to. This is the calling that Jonah is a part of. And the text tells us, And Jonah got up, he went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city. Three days walk across, Jonah started into the city walking one day. I'm going to tell you this. This might make some of you uncomfortable. This is an exaggeration. This happens in the Old Testament. Um, Nineveh wasn't quite three days across, but it was huge for an ancient city. Archaeologists have discovered that the walls were about seven and a half miles around. So this is not a small city. And also, by the way, it's a packed city full of people. So the idea that it would take you quite some time to make your way through a city like this is not an exaggeration. That's the point here. It's packed with people. It's packed with buildings. It's packed with animals. Anyone from the ancient world would understand what this meant, a massive city full. When I went to Cambodia last year, I was in the capital city of Phnom Penh. And getting from point A to B with Google Maps in Phnom Penh is not the same as getting from point A to B here. And the time estimates are wildly off because you get to these intersections with no lights. I have some amazing pictures of this. You get these intersections with no lights and traffic coming from all directions and motorcycles and tuk-tuks and cars and trucks. And, and everyone is just sort of pushing and shoving their way through. It can take you five minutes just to get through one intersection. It's chaos. It's crazy. You see people going up on the sidewalks sometimes if there is a sidewalk. So getting around a city so busy and crowded is not easy. You go into a market. They, I love these markets that they have. We don't have really anything quite like this. Pike's Place would come close, I think. And that's a pretty cool place around us. It's like this. But you go to these markets in these other countries. And in Phnom Penh, they have these massive markets around town. The largest one is called the Russian Market. 
And you walk in and you're immediately, it's, it's not air conditioned, it's outdoor, but it's sort of covered. And so it's just humid and the heat is stifling and there's people, the little vendors have fans and stuff, but stuff is everywhere. It's just visually overwhelming and you're constantly moving around in contact with other human bodies. There's no other way to move through the market. As an introvert, it just saps everything I've got going through that market. But at the same time, it's just invigorating to be in a place like this. And you, you go up to a booth and it will do, every square inch will be packed. I remember this, this one um, woman that we went particularly to meet with, Sray Mom, who's been disfigured and she's um, found through some Christian contacts. She actually came, gave her life to Christ and they've helped her set up this booth in the market. And we went in to see Sray Mom and she found out we were Christians and immediately embraced us as family and invited us into her market. We had backpacks on into her little booth and her booth is no wider than the stage and maybe twice as deep. And it's got more stuff in it than probably our Rite Aid. I mean, it is so packed right? And she invites us in there to pray, and we're just kind of like this, you know, and I knock stuff over. I'm such a klutz in places like that, and I'm apologizing, picking stuff back up as we're trying to get in there to pray. This is the kind of image that they, that scripture wants to give us when it says something like this. Jonah is going a day into the city that's massive, it's big, it's full of people and animals, and so the idea is that we would get this, this picture of Jonah not just walking down an empty street in Stanwood with a sign as a crazy prophet, but he is, he's entering into their world. He's going into their markets, and everywhere he goes, he's saying the same thing. Just 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. This isn't just any place. This is the place that God has placed people, and we'll see at the end of Jonah, animals that he loves. And he has sent his prophet into the middle of that chaos, into the middle of that mess, into the middle of the stores, in the middle of the markets, in the middle of the streets, in the government buildings, and everything else in the homes to give this message. And now we know, of course, why Jonah didn't want to go, because God gave him a political message to preach. It's treason. Forty more days, and the capital city will be overthrown? That's not going to go over well. There's no message of repentance. Just this. This is what's going to happen. It's one really short, really effective sermon, much better than mine this morning. Eugene Peterson says, Jonah didn't accuse them, or God through Jonah didn't accuse the people of being evil. He didn't denounce their sin and wickedness, but he called into question their future. He introduced eschatology into their now-oriented religion, their security-obsessed present. Eschatology is the word that theologians use to talk about the end times how things are going to come together, the fulfillment, if you will, but also the end. In other words, what Jonah does is he walks into this setting where everyone is focused on what's happening right now in their, their own world, and he introduces this message, you've got 40 days, and some kind of an end is coming for you. We believe as Christians that the world is moving in a certain direction. 
that despite the, uh, the popular saying, at least here in the U.S., that um, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, the Christian claim is, is the opposite. It's a claim that we're heading towards a just future where the righteous judge stands and judges the world, where evil will be destroyed for good, where everything will be renewed, new humanity, new creation. Individually, though, we also know through the scriptures that our life and through just life, we know that we're moving to an end. We try to deny it. In fact, we we get pretty good at denying that we could ever possibly die. But that's eschatology, realizing that things don't go on forever, that God is bringing about some kind of an end, some kind of a change. Imagine if you went to see your doctor tomorrow and your doctor said, you have a severe form of cancer and I give you about 40 days to live. That message was introduced into your life. 40 days and it's all over. What would you change? What would be different about your next 40 days? So this is God's message to the people of Nineveh. 40 days, it's all coming apart. It's all gonna come to an end. All that you're living for right now in this moment, it's all meaningless. The biblical significance of 40 is important. We have 40 days and nights in Noah's Ark. We have 40 days of the prophet Elijah on the run. We have 40 days of Jesus' temptation and 40 days of Jesus' appearances after the resurrection. Eugene Peterson again, he says, 40 is a stock biblical word that has hope at its core. Hope. 40 days is a period for testing the reality of one's life, examining it for truth, for authenticity. Is this a real life or just some cheap imitation passed off on me by a sleight-of-hand culture? Is what I'm doing and saying my own or just borrowed from people who know less than I do about who I am and what I am for? Is God skillfully shaping and wisely guiding my life or have I let my untortured whims of infantile sins reduce me to the lowest common denominator? Is this the way I want to spend the rest of my life? eschatology. We find it throughout scripture. That's a simple message that God is sending to the people of Nineveh. I imagine the reaction by the people. Now, we don't get a lot in Jonah, but I imagine Jonah walking down the streets, this foreigner, this outsider who just got spit out of a whale, so he's probably not at his best appearance anyway, and he's walking through the city, and he's saying, 40 more days, and it's all coming to an end. I imagine the same kind of reaction prophets have always received. Probably a lot of scorn. Probably some mocking. Probably a lot of dismissal. But what's interesting about this is that very quickly the text tells us that things changed. That everyone in this great city fasts. And they put on their funeral outfits, their mourning clothes, to show to God that they are sorry that they're turning away from our sin, their sin. Even though God didn't even ask them to do it. And this is, of course, going to be the turning point in our narrative of Jonah as we go forward, as Jonah struggles with what this means. And we, of course, we know that God went even further from, from us. He didn't just send a Jonah 
to us, but he sent his son. He sent Jesus to walk the streets, to enter the markets, to enter the chaos, and to proclaim both God's judgment and God's forgiveness. And of course, Jonah completed, I mean, Jesus completed what Jonah never could have. So we can now say, it's done, it's finished. Jesus took that judgment, our judgment, on the cross. Jesus proclaimed to us forgiveness and new life. So we have, were under that sentence of, you've only got a little while to turn around. And now, We've been given forgiveness and new life through Jesus. And the question for us then, how do we respond to this message, this prophetic message that we remind ourselves of every Sunday? Let's pray. God, you know our hearts. You know how fickle we can be, how easily we can turn away from what is right. And yet you find us here, you meet us here. We don't always like to think about the fact that the things could change, that they may not go on the same way as they are right now forever. And yet we've all experienced times of dramatic change in our life. And the one constant we have is your presence. You will be with us. You will go with us. Lord, help us to battle off these twin thieves of regret of our past, fear of the future, be able to live in joy this day that you've given us in every moment that we have. Give us the courage to take those steps towards Nineveh or whatever it is you're calling us to. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Christians, since the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, the way we have responded in worship to God's word is by coming to the Lord's table. This meal that Jesus gave to his disciples right before he went to the cross, before his resurrection, when he told them that this would be something that we would do in remembrance of him. And it's also for us a, a call to come and respond because we don't bring anything. This is not an altar. We don't bring anything up here to offer. It's already provided which is, you think about that, that's really different, isn't it? I mean, I've even been in churches when, when you do the offering, you bring the offering up front and you put it in the basket, which I think is a great tradition. But when we come to the Lord's table, everything is prepared. It's already here. It's all been done. We're simply invited to come to the dinner. Isn't that great? Have you ever been a, you know, if you've ever been a host, you know how much work that is or a hostess. But when you get invited to someone's house and say, oh, you don't need to bring anything, just show up. You're like, yes, right? That's the, that's the gospel message. It's all been done. The table's been set, and you're all invited to come and be a part of this. Calvin, are you letting the kids know we're getting started? Thank you. Great. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant sealed in my blood, poured out for the sins of many. As often as you drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. 
Friends, every time we eat this bread, every time we drink this cup, we proclaim the saving death of our Lord Jesus Christ until he comes again. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these gifts given to us to sustain us, to fill us, to help us move forward into the, this calling that you have given us and also to be united with you. We don't understand how it all works. We know this is a mystery, but we're grateful that we get to participate. Lord, we recognize that we have at times been like many of the people that we have read about in the scriptures, your people, who despite hearing the words of the prophets that things would change, that there was an end coming, that they turned their hearts hard and they rejected that message. So we ask today, Lord, that you would help us to be more like those people of Nineveh who knew nothing of you. When they heard your word, their hearts were softened and they said we want to turn away and we want to change. God, we offer you this, that we desire to follow you and be faithful to you. We thankful, we are we're grateful that Jesus made that possible for us. We know that he was the true great prophet of all prophets. And that that message, that word that he brought to us is still true for us here today. And that we're asked to respond. Lord, we also thank you for the promise this meal holds that one day after our life is over that we will be sitting at a great table with all of our brothers and sisters at the great banquet. We thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be receiving uh, communion by intinction this morning, which means that as you come forward, um, you can take a piece of bread off the plate and then you can dip it into the cup and just take it here. We have some gluten-free bread on the back behind the loaf if you're looking for that. Here you go, John. And a reminder that you are not, um, you don't have to be a member of this church or any church in order to receive this uh, Lord's Supper, that it's an open invitation to all those who would like to follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And kids are welcome to participate. Parents, you've been in, in teaching them the meaning of this sacrament. Feel free to take your time if you'd like to pray a little bit or sit in silence before you come forward. We are in no hurry. We'll wait till everyone has been served. When you're ready, just go ahead and come down here, take a piece of bread, and you can dip it in the cup, and you can just go back to your seats that way. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come.
invite you to stand. God, we give you thanks. You are the one who is worthy of all of our praise and all of our, our thanksgiving. And we desire to follow after you. And we reaffirm our commitment to you today. Lord, as we go from this place, we ask that as we move through the day ahead and the week ahead, that your spirit would be prompting us and moving us to notice those moments when you are calling us to our own Nineveh, knowing that you desire to um, show your love to this world that we interact with every day. We ask for your strength in this, in Jesus' name. Amen.